Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on March 17th, 2022. There are a number of significant cross-currents in the market right now. The strong post-pandemic economic recovery has become its own worst enemy, as inflation has proven to be persistent and the jobs market is extremely tight. The Federal Reserve has sprung into action. At yesterday's FOMC meeting, the Fed announced the first interest rate hike in the next tightening cycle, with more to come. The Fed also announced that it would soon begin shrinking its balance sheet. At the same time, the war in Ukraine has endangered the lives of millions of Ukrainians, risked a major refugee crisis, and is a growing threat to the global economy the longer it continues. And we are not yet done with the coronavirus, or should I say that it is not yet done with us, as mainland China is facing its worst COVID-19 outbreak since 2020, forcing Shenzhen, one of the most important manufacturing hubs in the world, to shut down. Our guest today is going to help us make sense of what all this means for the economy and for markets. Here to chat with us is Brian Smedley, Chief Economist of Guggenheim Investments and the head of our Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. Before joining Guggenheim in 2015, Brian was head of short rates research at B of A Merrill and a senior official at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Let's listen in. Welcome, Brian, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you, Jay. It's great to be with you. Well, right now, Brian, there is so much going on that I almost don't know where to start. But uh, let's start with two immediately developing events, the shift in monetary policy and the war in Ukraine. To start with policy, what was in the FOMC statement that was released yesterday and the summary of economic projections? Uh, and was it what you expected? Yeah, we, we, I would say we weren't surprised by the main message, which is that the Fed recognizes that the current monetary policy setting is totally inappropriate given the economic reality before us. Um, that being said, the FOMC meeting was a bit more hawkish than we were expecting. In particular, we anticipated that the Fed would hike by 25 basis points, which they did. Uh, but the more interesting question coming in was what would the Fed say about the likely path of policy from here? And we saw in the dot plot uh, the equivalent of six more 25 basis point rate hikes at the remaining six meetings in 2022, then roughly four more hikes in 2023, which would uh, take the Fed funds rate up to 2.8%. Uh, and, uh, and that was a bit stronger um, uh, pace of uh, policy tightening when we expected they would show at this point. Well, obviously, the Fed is not ignoring what's going on in the world, and uh, they made reference to uh, the crisis overseas, the war in Ukraine, and its impact on markets. How do you think the war in Ukraine affected what the Fed announced yesterday? Yeah, so to start, I think I would say that the, the war in Ukraine had minimal effect uh, on the decision yesterday, um, although it might have tempered some enthusiasm for hiking by 50 basis points. There was one 
dissent uh, among the voters in favor of a 50 basis point hike by President Bullard. Uh, but the FOMC statement itself mentioned that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia will put even further upward pressure on inflation and will weigh on economic activity. So the, we think the Fed can live with somewhat slower growth, given that demand growth has been running far above what is sustainable, but they can't tolerate even higher inflation. And so on balance, uh, the situation in Ukraine and the effect on global commodity prices pushes the Fed toward, I think, an even faster normalization of monetary policy from these highly accommodative levels. And when you mean normalization, you mean, uh, again, removing accommodation. That's right. Um, you know, raising rates um, through a sequence of you know, policy steps and, and eventually starting to shrink the balance sheet as well. Now, before we dive uh, into some of the details of the Fed's decision and your thoughts on it, uh, did you hear any clarifying information about the decision in the press conference that also helped to shed light on what the Fed is thinking? I think we did. Uh, we heard that Powell sees the labor market as being extremely tight and likely to get even tighter. Uh, he pointed to a record number of job openings as evidence of very strong demand for labor. So strong demand for labor will translate into further wage gains, uh, which will in turn support the continuation of above target inflation. So a key message we heard from Powell in the press conference is that the Fed has to slow demand to more sustainable levels, which should take pressure off the labor market and in turn reduce inflationary pressures in our red hot economy. Uh, the Fed will aim to do that by tightening financial conditions broadly. This is something Powell spoke about several times. Uh, and along those lines, Powell also indicated that they might be ready to announce the start of quantitative tightening through you know, passive balance sheet runoff as early as May, which is, is the next upcoming meeting. Now, uh, obviously, what the big driver of uh, the Fed's decision is inflation, uh, which has been running very hot for several months now, uh, as, as well as, as you said, the very strong jobs market. Um, what is your outlook for how these two very important uh, data points are going to be trending from here? And what do you think the Fed's reaction function will be uh, on these two legs of their mandate? Well, prior to the, U the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the announcement of major COVID-related lockdowns in China, we were optimistic that supply chain pressures would ease later this year resulting in a modest drop in durable goods prices and lower inflation overall, particularly as the strong gains in durable goods prices, things like you know, automobiles, for example, would fall out of the year-over-year -year comparison later this year. Uh, unfortunately, the normalization of supply chains now looks like a more dis distant prospect. Um, in addition, surging food, metals, and energy prices will feed through to headline inflation, of course, but also core inflation. Um, meanwhile, shelter inflation will continue to be strong given the extremely tight housing market and other categories we think will continue to be supported by very strong growth in aggregate wage and salary income, uh, which will again lead to continued uh, solid demand and cons consumer spending. So on that point on the labor market, we expect the job market to continue to tighten uh, with the unemployment rate likely heading toward 3% later this year from 3.8 in February. And actually many alternative indicators uh, of, of the job market suggest the labor market's historically tight already and is continuing to tighten at a very rapid pace. So, you know, we see this uh, extending for at least the next year. Uh, and given that the Fed is now 
moved you know beyond has overshot its dual mandate objectives on both the full employment and the inflation side. Um, you know the Fed, as as I noted earlier, the Fed's objective now is to try to restrain demand to bring it down to a more sustainable pace, uh, which we think is quite a bit slower than what we're seeing now, and uh, and and you know hopefully um, hopefully engineer a soft landing. So the, the the combination of the tight jobs market, extremely tight jobs market, and uh, the, the the level of CPI inflation right now uh, makes brings to mind the idea of a wage price spiral. Um, t- talk a little bit about you know how that is in the mind of the central bank right now. Well, a wage price spiral is uh, is something the Fed is is determined to avoid. Um, you know, if you go back to the August 2021 Jackson Hole speech by Chair Powell. You know, he's, he indicated at the time and, and in his review of the economic data that available then suggested there wasn't any evidence of, you know, broad-based wage pressures or broad-based inflationary pressures. The data since then have really changed the story and, and the Fed is, as a result has, has changed their tune as well. So, um, you know, they're, uh, they are focused on, um, you know, slowing down the pace of economic growth and that's, you know, historically, that's an uncomfortable place for the Fed to be. Um, they haven't been in a situation for decades, honestly, where they've had to try to restrain the job market uh, as it's in an overheating spot and, and also try to slow inflation. So, um, you know, they, as Powell mentioned in his uh, congressional testimony last week and then reiterated yesterday at the press conference, uh, you know, he hopes that history will judge that the Fed is willing to do what it takes uh, to achieve its inflation mandate over time, even if that comes, you know, at, at the expense of other things. So meaning, you know, even if economic growth uh, has to take a hit. Well, I know that uh, Chair Powell is uh, is a student of uh, one of his predecessors, Paul Volcker, who read his autobiography. And I also know that, you know, he's heard the uh, tapes of Volcker basically apologizing for you know, doing what he had to do, but also putting the economy into recession. So that, I guess, is ultimately what he's hoping to at least make people aware of, but also avoid. He's threading a needle, I assume. He is. And I think, you know, he and other central bankers recognize that um, that with the benefit of, you know, 40 years of hindsight, essentially, you know, we look back on the Volcker era as being a big success uh, and, you know, Paul Volcker and his associates took pretty extraordinary, you know, steps to try to rein in inflation. Uh, and that came at, at a high cost uh, that we had two recessions in the early 80s. And we had a, a sustained period of very high real interest rates uh, in the aftermath of that. And that that certainly um, was costly for the economy. But but again, uh, looking back on that era, we remember Paul Vol- Volcker and we celebrate you know, his courage and determination to uh, you know, to do the right thing for the economy in the long run. Now, but before we get to uh, some of the execution of monetary policy, I know that Scott Minard has said that uh, we should also look to the experience of the of the post-war America inflation as a possible uh, corollary, where that inflation was caused by um, you know demand demand supply imbalance, uh, similar to what we've had here, and that also that that once that supply demand imbalance comes back into um, into balance, 
um, that the inflationary pressures uh, started to ease quite quickly. Uh, is that also a, a possible scenario going forward? Uh, where do you see inflation trending from here? Yeah, I think I think it is possible. Um, you know, I think it I think it depends on on uh, on our luck, to be honest, as well as the skill of policymakers. Um, I think you know, Chair Powell has been asked about the fiscal stance during the, you know the last two years of the pandemic and whether it's been appropriate or inappropriate in hindsight and. You know, I, I think he's he's been careful to avoid giving a direct answer on that. But but my opinion is that um, again, with the benefit of hindsight, we way overstimulated the economy with fiscal policy, particularly the December 2020 package at the end of the the Trump administration and the March 2021 package in the early days of the Biden administration. So um, it looks like you know we we just added too much fuel to the fire, and now it's up to Jay Powell and the Fed to. Uh, to try to rein that in. Um, I do think they'll be successful, but I, I don't think um, we are, should be too optimistic about the near-term prospects. And, and the reason is we've had a string of, um, of shocks, you know, you could say bad luck or, or just uh, difficult circumstances that have accumulated uh, to make it more difficult for us to, uh, you know, to bring inflation back down to target without taking more extreme you know, extreme tightening measures. So uh, Powell's trying to thread the needle. Um, he's got a difficult job. And, um, and so, you know, as market participants, we try to, you know, try to navigate through what's a, a highly uncertain economic environment, but also, you know, the, Fe the Fed's reaction function is also in flux. Uh, as Powell, you know, mentioned a few months ago, the Fed has to be humble and nimble and, uh, and try to adapt to a situation that's changing very rapidly on the ground. Well, certainly, uh, given the the almost 180 degree turn uh, from Jackson Hole last year to where we are right now, shows that they are certainly nimble and humble. Well, that's right, um, and it's not been without a healthy dose of criticism from uh, you know from economists, former policymakers, uh, market participants, and, and the general public that have been you know quite dissatisfied with the rise in inflation, uh, but. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I think the Fed deserves some credit for, you know, changing their mind when the facts on the ground changed. And, uh, and really, you know, that's, nobody has a, a crystal ball. Um, I think we can say that it was, it was, you know, a mistake to underestimate the inflationary uh, pressure building from the humongous fiscal policy that was, this policy stimulus that was delivered. Uh, but, um, but you know, the Fed at least has, I, I think, gotten on the right track where, you know, it's, it's just um, more appropriate for monetary policy to be at, at, a, at least a more neutral setting when you've got uh, the highest inflation in 40 years and the tightest job mar market potentially uh, we've ever seen. So, so, as you said, it's now up to Jay Powell and the Fed. So, uh, let's talk about how they could execute monetary policy from here. Um, you know, we've talked about some of the tools they have at their disposal, um, you know, uh, tightening, uh, raising rates, changing the balance sheet, uh, forward guidance. How do you see these playing out going forward and how do they work together in, uh, in trying to achieve their objectives? Well, I think the first tool we should talk about is forward guidance because the Fed had already used its guidance to tighten monetary policies substantially even before it raised the Fed funds target for the first time this week. 
if the five-year treasury yield, for instance, which is highly influenced by the current and expected future stance of policy, has risen by 150 basis points since last August. Uh, this is a pretty big recalibration of the policy stance, and it has real-world implications for borrowing costs uh, and financial conditions broadly. Uh, the dot plot and communication about the Fed's plans to shrink the balance sheet have reinforced this rise in spot treasury yields by encouraging market participants to price in higher forward rates in anticipation of looming Fed rate hikes and, of course, increased net bond supply as the Fed's holdings uh, mature and roll off. So in terms of the mix of rate hikes versus the balance sheet, past FOMC minutes have indicated that the uh, FOMC is sensitive to the flattening of the yield curve, and they might want to lean a bit more heavily on the balance sheet in lieu of rate hikes to delay the inversion of the yield curve. Um, and what we heard from this week's FOMC meeting, though, suggested the Fed's a lot less worried about the shape of the yield curve at this point than they are about possibly losing control of inflation and inflation expectations. Uh, and so it looks like every meeting will be live for rate hikes, at least for the next year or so. Uh, and balance sheet runoff, we were told, could begin as soon as June with a possible May, May announcement. Um, and so really, the, the, these three policy tools, forward guidance, rate hikes, and balance sheet, will reinforce the message from the Fed, which is that they want to see financial conditions tighten broadly in a way that would, uh, they hope, restrain economic activity. You know, not that they're cheering for a downturn by any means, but, but you know, we've seen nominal GDP growth running at 10 to 12% annualized in the last six months. That's way, way too strong for us to sustain without seeing inflation continually running above the Fed's target. Uh, and so, you know, the, the only real tools the Fed has, or the only real mechanism for the Fed to, uh, to try to rectify that is, is to see financial conditions tighten in a way that, um, you know, taps the brakes on the economy. I would say too, I, I need to mention that we are seeing less fiscal policy support, you know, although I think there's, uh, a lot of uh, fiscal stimulus that's kind of still um, um, still propelling the economy forward because a lot of the funds weren't spent. Um, uh, the incremental spending by the Treasury has come down pretty sharply, and that is that is slowing growth sequentially, uh, which I think is actually helpful at this point in the cycle. Um, specifically, if you look at the the budget deficit as one barometer. Uh, in the first five years of this current fiscal year through through February, uh, the the, cum the the cumulative budget deficit for that period is 55% smaller than it was for the comparable period in the prior fiscal year. Uh, so again, that points to some you know some uh, reduced fiscal impulse that is reinforcing you know what the Fed is trying to do. So Brian, uh, sticking with the execution of monetary policy. Uh, how many rate hikes do you see going forward and what do you think the terminal rate would be? And how does the, the, the roll off or, or shrinking of the $9 trillion balance sheet, uh, how is that reflected in terms of you know, tightening equivalents? Sure. Um, look, our view right now is that the, the terminal rate in this hiking cycle will be around 2%. Uh, and that's actually happens to be in line with what the you know the forward curve is 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 pricing in in the market. So um, you know we're 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 broadly in agreement with what the market is pricing in for for the terminal rate uh, around two percent. Um, in terms of the interplay between 
the balance sheet and rate hikes. Uh, our expectation again is that the Fed by uh, by June will start shrinking the balance sheet. Um, we think that the caps that, that caps will be introduced to limit the speed with which the uh, the Fed's portfolio shrinks each month and make it a little bit more predictable, a little bit more controlled. And so we think those caps will rise uh, over a few months' time to uh, to 100 billion in total, split 60 billion in treasuries and 40 billion in mortgages. So you know, if you we, we think the Fed is going to shrink the balance sheet for uh, you know the rest of this year and through 2023, which would you know equate to um, uh, about one and a half to two trillion dollars in total shrinkage of the Fed's portfolio. Equating that to rate hikes is an you know is is an imprecise exercise, but we ballpark that estimate at around three quarter point hikes on top of um, the actual hikes in the Fed funds rate. And you know, given the situation we're at now, and and this is obviously a an ongoing assessment, do you think that this will be enough? To, uh, to 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 halt the uh, the inflationary rise in, uh, in prices. Um, I think it probably will be. Yeah, it's it's uh, hard to know at this stage, but um, most likely that is going to you know be enough to bring inflation back down. Um, again, that we're we're hoping for some resolution to the supply chain problems that are plaguing the global economy. Uh, of course, we're hoping for uh, a quick um, conclusion to the war in Ukraine, um, uh, not least because of all the human suffering taking place there. But, but um, you know, it'll depend on some of these ex exogenous factors uh, beyond just what the Fed is trying to do. Now, um, we, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, economic growth. Um, you know, it's been very, very hot. Uh, fourth quarter real is uh, was seven percent. Uh, the Atlanta Fed's GDP now for the first quarter has dropped, and it's been bouncing around zero for several weeks. Uh, where do you think we are right now in uh, in GDP growth, and should we be start? Should we, is it too early to be thinking about recession? Um, look, I, I think it's too early to be thinking about recession for twenty twenty two. Yes, um, you know we're always looking out on the horizon and thinking about the cycle and uh, and potential recession risks. So uh, I do think that you know the faster the labor market tightens, uh, the faster the Fed tightens monetary policy, and and, and the faster the yield curve flattens, um, you know the closer we we will get to the end of this expansion. Uh, those are a handful of the telltale signs that we watch. But I don't think that is a near-term concern. Um, speaking to Q1 GDP, we think Q1 is likely to come in soft at around 1%, but um, investors shouldn't be misled by this weak number. Uh, the underlying trend in demand is very strong. So to see that, we should look at a subset of GDP called real final sales to private domestic purchasers. So essentially this category strips out exports, inventories and government spending, which tend to be noisier from quarter to quarter. And so far in the first quarter, real growth in this category, you could almost think of it as core GDP. Um, this category is tracking 4.3% annualized, 
in real terms, which is a very solid number and actually above the 3.0% seen in Q4 of last year and even higher than Q3 of last year. Uh, and of course, Q4, as you mentioned, is a quarter in which overall GDP rose by 7%. So, so we see uh, GDP bouncing back in Q2 uh, and remaining well above potential throughout this year, which implies a, a tighter labor market um, and tighter product markets as the year goes on. Well, Brian, before we uh, before I ask you a couple of questions about geopolitics and geopolitical risk, uh, I want to talk about what you're seeing in the markets, right? So the long end of the curve, you know, had been selling off, and then it bounced down with a little flight to quality, flight to safety. Uh, equities have been exhibiting weakness um, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, wh what are you seeing in the markets right now, and what should investors be thinking about uh, when they're assessing? Uh, the uh, the opportunities that they're seeing? Well, I, I think there's a lot of interesting things to see in recent price action. I want to start with something that you referred to a minute ago, which is the flattening of the yield curve. And what do we make of that? And how do we you know think about recession risks? I would point out um, that on a one-year forward basis, uh, the one-year forward twos, tens swap curve is inverted by more than 25 basis points, okay? So there's been a lot of focus on, you know, the, the flattening of the spot curve and, and actually the fives, tens treasury curve did invert uh, overnight, uh, just following off the FOMC meeting the day before. So I think the, you know, the flattening of the yield curve is suggesting that, you know, the Fed has a fair amount of work to do to raise interest rates for the next uh, let's say 18 months, but then growth is likely to slow and, uh, and, and possibly require the Fed to cut rates. And that might align with a recession in, let's say, 2024. So that's kind of what the, the bond market is, is, I think, attaching a relatively high probability to. So more broadly, um, I see the markets digesting a series of shocks and, and building in a higher risk premium over the last few months to compensate investors for the increased uncertainty they face. Uh, it really started in November with the emergence of the Omicron strain of COVID-19. Then in early January, the FOMC minutes from the December meeting suggested the Fed was gearing up to start shrinking the balance sheet much sooner than people generally expected. Um, this indicated to the market that the FOMC was maybe a lot more concerned about being behind the curve than they had let on as recently as a few weeks before. Um, then in February and March, we've digested the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the warning by Vladimir Putin, who essentially advertised that, you know, to paraphrase, Russia has nuclear weapons and knows how to use them. Uh, so this, this, is, this sequence of events has led to higher bond yields, wider credit spreads, lower equity valuations, and higher commodity prices. So altogether, that's a pretty big tightening of financial conditions in a short period of time. But, you know, let's not forget that real interest rates in the U.S. are still deeply negative. And the Fed has you know, a long way to go just to get back to a neutral policy stance. The same is true of other major central banks in Europe and Japan and elsewhere. So we think the economy and the markets will take these shocks in stride. Uh, more specifically, we think now is a, uh, an opportune time to be adding risk. And in the early days of a, of a hiking cycle, uh, how do uh, equities and other risk assets generally perform? 
what we find historically is that uh, that risk assets generally do uh, fairly well during Fed hiking cycles. Um, you know, let's let's just think back, think for a minute about the, the what motivates the Fed to hike rates is is usually a strong economy, a tightening labor market, uh, rising inflation. These are all signs of um, you know a healthy economy and generally speaking, healthy corporate earnings. Um, and so. We think the same is true now. Um, and again, based on history, we find that uh, equities and you know, uh, below investment grade credit, floating rate uh, credit instruments tend to perform uh, reasonably well during Fed hiking cycles. Great. Now, uh, turning back to geopolitics for a minute, um, we were on a call last week where a speaker said that anyone who says they know what's going to happen in Ukraine is lying. Uh, so let me ask you, Brian, what do you think is going to happen in Ukraine? How will this war play out from here? And how would you handicap uh, the range of different outcomes? Sure. Well, I, I certainly am going to try to avoid lying. Um, and I will say <laughs> that I, I would agree there's a, a high degree of uncertainty, of course. But let's let's start with what we think we know after the first three weeks of war. First, the Russian armed forces have way underperformed, both in terms of the readiness of their hardware and personnel for battle, as well as their progress or lack thereof in achieving their military objectives. They have, of course, destroyed a huge amount of Ukrainian buildings, lives, infrastructure, but they've not captured major Ukrainian cities, nor have they broken the will of Ukrainians to fight. Um, in fact, the country seems more unified and determined to defend itself than ever. And meanwhile, the Ukrainians have outperformed expectations, both militarily and diplomatically. Uh, President Zelensky has proven to be a highly charismatic, uh, brave, and inspirational leader. And he's galvanized the support of Western leaders, uh, namely President Biden and the alliance that they've put together to support Ukraine. So what we see now is uh, increased amounts of uh, you know, uh, hardware, military hardware and, and assets coming from the United States and, and many other countries uh, heading into Ukraine to support their defense against the Russian invasion. The United States is also providing very important uh, support in the form of military intelligence. Uh, this is helping the Ukrainians, you know, fend off uh, attacks and and bomb, uh, destroy, you know, columns of tanks and, and, and trucks uh, uh, and also to take out a handful of uh, senior generals on the battlefield on the Russian side. So, um, so you know, it's a terrible situation for everybody to watch. Um, there's been a, a tragic loss of life to this point. But um, I would say, you know, it, things look a bit better for Ukraine to, you know, survive as a sovereign nation uh, and for their government to, to survive intact than they did uh, on the eve of this invasion a few weeks ago. Um, well, you know, I think the wild card that, that most people would, would acknowledge is, you know, we don't know how President Putin is going to react in, you know, in the face of getting bogged down in Ukraine and suffering, you know, a lot of um, losses um, of military personnel and military hardware. How does he react to that? Does he escalate uh, in a way that might, you know, pull in NATO allies? Uh, could he attack uh, maybe a neighboring NATO country? Could he use tactical nuclear weapons? These are all things that came up, as you mentioned, on the call we had for clients recently. 
and so it's very hard to handicap that. Um, but but what we do know is that you know any such escalation by Russia would be met with a, a swift and uh, and unified response by uh, you know Ukraine's allies in the West. China is uh, also a wild card here, both intrinsically uh, and relative to what's going on with Putin's war. What do you think China is watching for right now? Well, this war, you know, is puts China in a difficult spot. Um, Russia and China have certain things in common um, in terms of their mutual interest in um, challenging the U.S.-led status quo, uh, the U.S. hegemony, you could say, um, and um, and so they're united by that that interest. Um, they also have strong economic ties. Of course, they they share uh, an enormous uh, land border, um, but China also has a lot more to lose uh, by ostracizing, you know, itself from Europe and the United States. Uh, China's trade with uh, with the rest of the world, with with you know, you could say the broader West, is um, is extremely important to China, and uh, and we think that they're trying to balance these considerations. On the one hand, you know, on uh, early, on the eve of the Olympics, uh, you know, Xi and Putin put out a joint statement, uh, basically saying, you know, we're our countries are best friends, and and we're here to support each other through thick and thin. Um, but I think we've seen China start to scale back that, um, you know, as we've seen the fighting in Ukraine persist now for three weeks, uh, we've seen the, um, the really strong response in terms of coordinated sanctions uh, by the U.S. and its allies against Russia. I think China's really gotten the message that, um, you know, the, it's not in their interest to go too far in supporting Russia. Uh, in waging this campaign of war in Ukraine. Um, so, you know, China's trying to position itself as playing a constructive role um, at this difficult time and trying to convey that, you know, although they are an ally of Putin and, and, and the Russian state, they also value uh, their ties with Europe, the US and, and the rest of the world. Um, so it's a bit of a balancing act for China at this point. Now, uh, you talked about sanctions. Uh, economic sanctions have become a, as important a, a battlefield front as the actual battles on the ground. Uh, I'd, I'd be surprised if the Department of Defense didn't have a chief economist just to think about the economic strategy alongside the military strategy. Do you think that the, that the heavy sanctions that are being placed on Russia uh, can work in trying to uh, pressure them to stop what they're doing on the ground? Well, I think they can. Uh, I think ultimately they probably will. Um, but I would also say that there still um, is a lot left on the table that the U.S. and its allies can can deliver in terms of stronger and broader sanctions. So um, so I, I, I certainly wouldn't rule that out if this if this continues week after week, I think we will see an escalation of sanctions as time goes by. But what we see right now is, um, is an effort by the US and its partners to suffocate the Russian economy. Um, that won't happen overnight, uh, but the more time goes by, the more painful these sanctions will be for the Russian financial system 
uh, for goods markets and uh, and the labor market. Um, you know, the, one of the first questions that we're grappling with is: Will there be a default by the Russian sovereign on its uh, international obligations? Um, there's a bit of a question now as to whether uh, you know Russia. Ha Russia has stated that they've um, made the payment for a, a dollar-denominated bond that had a coupon on March 16th. It was due, but we haven't gotten confirmation that that payment has made its way through uh, the banking system uh, to to the bondholders. So um, you know, if if the if the if Russia it essentially can't uh, make those payments because of sanctions, um, then, you know, they'll be declared in default uh, 30 days after the 30 day grace period from March 16th. Um, but aside from that, what we see happening in Russia is uh, plummeting confidence, uh, the sharp drop in the ruble and the freezing of most of their foreign exchange reserves, really the most useful part of the foreign exchange stockpile is now frozen. Uh, what's left is not very useful for what Russia needs to do uh, to intervene, to defend uh, its currency and to make foreign exchange available for things like sovereign debt, you know, debt payments or, or other important, important financial flows uh, or trade flows. So, um, so they're, they're in a bit of a bind here. Um, and so the, the, the chaos in the foreign exchange market and the balance of payments um, removes from Russia what we in economics call a nominal anchor, right? The nominal anchor in the US is the credibility of the Federal Reserve to main, you know, to achieve its dual mandate objectives using its tools. Uh, in many emerging market countries, you know, the, the foreign exchange market and, and, and the ability of the central bank to manage monetary policy in the context of stability in the balance of payments is very important in anchoring inflation expectations and wage and price setting behavior. So I think what we're starting to see in Russia is, you know, is, is uh, a sharp increase in inflation. Uh, we're going to see more and more shortages of goods and services, particularly as Western firms pull out and cease to do business with Russia, cut off uh, exports, et cetera. Um, but also as, um, you know, people look to stockpile um, things uh, in anticipation of shortages and, uh, and, and they, that includes, um, you know, uh, hoarding of bank deposits and, and runs on banks uh, as people look to, you know, ensure the safety of their, uh, of their assets, um, which, is, which is now in question in a way that I think uh, nobody there could have anticipated a few weeks ago. Now, um, some have questioned, uh, raised questions about these sanctions uh, because they've never been done before in, in history. Uh, so there's obviously a risk that they backfire in some way. One thing that you mentioned before is they could backfire by Putin doubling down uh, on, on his war effort uh, because of what's happening in sanctions. But uh, another is that has come up is that uh, the sanctions could end up threatening the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Do you share these concerns? Um, I do not. Um, I, I think fretting over the loss of dollar dominance is, um, seems to be a favorite pastime of some observers. And I understand that. Um, but I think the overblown, um, 
you know, I, I again, I, I think it's it's really important to think carefully about these issues because, you know, you could say the position of the dollar and the U.S. Treasury market in the global capital markets, global financial system is is really the goose that lays the golden egg in the United States, and it, it would be a terrible mistake if we, um, you know, if we if we took steps to undermine. Uh, the role of the dollar or or the the prominence of the treasury market, but so, but but I don't see that as being a big risk. Um, some people see U.S. fiscal profligacy, high inflation, historic sanctions on Russia, as spelling the end of dollar dominance. But I think the reality is quite different. So, you know, the U.S. dollar and just as importantly the U.S. Treasury and the repo markets proved to be the ultimate safe assets during the global liquidity crisis that accompanied the start of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Two years ago, um, you know, let's just remember that the dollar appreciated against most currencies, and the Fed provided essentially unlimited support through its repo operations and its outright treasury support, uh, treasury purchases, to maintain liquidity, market functioning, and market access for reserve holders and other investors that needed uh, to liquidate possession uh, positions. So, if we were to relive that episode hypothetically. You know, ask yourself if you would want to have your FX reserves held in treasuries denominated in U.S. dollars and in the U.S. legal system, or would you rather hold Chinese yuan uh, and Chinese sovereign debt uh, onshore in China? I think the Chinese yuan, their capital markets and legal system are just no match for what we see in the U.S. and also Europe. Um, so I think what we've also observed during the last month is how important a country's geopolitical alliances are. And the fact that the US, the UK, Eurozone, Canada, Japan, uh, and other nations have been united in levying devastating sanctions against Russia shows just how important the alliances of the United States are and how costly it can be for a country to find itself on the wrong side of that alliance. It really has been good to see those alliances develop. Now, to, to, with my last question for you, Brian, uh, central bankers, uh, and you used to be one, <laughs> uh, always talk about the balance of risks. Uh, given the geopolitical and economic backdrop that we've been discussing, uh, for investors, what do you think the balance of risks are right now? Credit risk, spread risk, liquidity risk, duration risk. Uh, and what, what should folks be thinking about as they you know, are you know observing developments over the next couple of months and years? Well, first, I think you're right, Jay, to point out that there are uh, upside and downside risks to consider. Um, that's always, you know, something that we're trying to balance, but especially in this environment where the macro outlook is highly uncertain, is unusually uncertain. Uh, from a fundamental point of view, you know, we think the balance of risks is skewed in favor of a continued strong expansion this year. Um, and ongoing pressure on inflation, um, uh, at least you know persisting above target, but hopefully you know moderating as the year goes on. So this will keep the Fed, as we mentioned before, and most other major central banks in tightening mode, um, or at least with a tightening bias. And so we continue to favor being somewhat overweight credit, given the strength of corporate earnings and and low default rates that we see in credit markets but with a preference for floating rate assets such as leverage loans, um, CLOs, or other, other asset-backed securities with floating coupons and reasonable carry. Well, thanks again for your time, Brian. Please come again and visit soon when there's still more to talk about. You got it. And thanks once again to Brian Smedley. And thanks to all of you who joined us for our new podcast. 
I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership and videos, including the CIO outlook of Scott Minard, our global CIO, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. And herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the following affiliated investment management businesses. Guggenheim Partners Investment Management, LLC, Security Investors, LLC, Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC, Guggenheim Funds Investment Advisors, LLC, Guggenheim Corporate Funding, LLC, Guggenheim Partners Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Fund Management Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Japan Limited, GS Gamma Advisors, LLC, and Guggenheim Partners India Management.